0: welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris.
1: And I'm Ari Deckard.
0: And this is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all his other medical experiences that have happened in his life. So Ari, in our last episode, we talked about you moving in with me and your big move from Portland to Seattle, completely changing your medical team, (laughs) getting a new doctor, getting new in-center dialysis. And we talked about the move itself and the transition itself, mm-hmm. but once you get to Seattle for quite a while, your life falls into a pretty regular pattern. Yeah, you're in Seattle. You're living with me. You're doing in-center hemodialysis. Right. So I think to get started for this era of your life, if you could talk about your day-to-day.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so you were going to school, at the University of Washington. You were in your junior year, I think. And I was no longer in school. So I had dialysis three times a week. I was on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. I was on an early shift uh, morning time. So those three days a week, I would get up at, I think, about 6 o'clock in the morning, try not to wake you up when I got up, kind of throw some clothes on, get in my car, drive the, I think, 15, 20 minutes to the center Uh, on empty, empty freeways, Uh, get in, and then do the whole dialysis routine. So weigh myself, check in, say, hey, I'm here, kind of stuff. Usually just go straight to my chair. Then one of the couple of different techs who usually put me on the machine would come over and look at my dry weight, look at how much fluid I had put on, make the calculation, ask me if I wanted something different done, and I would say usually no, put the needles in, set the machine, and start me going. And from the very beginning at that center, things were very smooth. Things were really routine. I think I mentioned other than that one incident, everything was pretty much totally fine. I was really familiar with dialysis. It had been a few years, but it was very familiar. They were very competent um, and skilled. So... I would be on dialysis, uh, it was extremely boring, uh, <laughs> as it always is. Sometimes I brought a book, but I kind of very quickly figured out that there were a couple of channels that they got on the TV where I could watch various TV shows that either I had seen, but not all of, or I hadn't seen and wanted to. So I've now seen almost all of Malcolm in the Middle, that was how I first started watching Angel. A couple of other shows, I remember those in particular.
0: So you watched them reruns in syndication in the morning?
1: Right. And they also tended to do a thing that was back to back. Oh, I watched Charmed too. Yeah, that was a big one. Uh, Probably made sure I caught prices right. So, (laughs) you know, it was, it's like that. That's not exciting or interesting. I mean, it's maybe interesting, but it's not exciting. Uh, Another thing I did, because at that point I had a cell phone, was sometimes I would Call one of my parents, talk with them. Call my sister, but for the most part, sit in a chair for about four hours and watch reruns and syndication of of various TV shows. And then I would get off and be very tired, and I would get in my car, drive back home, and you would then be gone because you would be at classes. Depending on the day, I would either you know kind of mess around on my computer, usually uh, low key stuff like probably some Facebook. Facebook was still pretty new then, or occasionally like IMing or uh, online chatting with various friends of mine, or I played a lot, a lot of World of Warcraft at that time. Uh, That was something that you and I had gotten into when I was still in Ellensburg as a way to communicate and kind of do something together. We could sort of chat and be doing something at the same time. But there were other days where I would come home and the process had been draining. Ha ha. And so... Dialysis
0: takes a lot out of you.
1: Oh boy, does it? And and so I would uh, get into bed and take a nap. And when that happened, usually then you would come home and find me. And I, I would try to text you and say, hey, I'm I'm taking a nap. I'm really tired. And then we would, you know, have dinner together, maybe watch some TV, hang out, goof around, joke, play World of Warcraft together, something, um, you know, you had homework you would do, and go to bed. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you also had classes, I didn't have dialysis, so I would get up, eh, probably after you left for class, but sometimes around the same time, and I kind of had a day to myself. And I would often read a little and, you know, again, fart around on my computer. During that time, I also had a part-time job where I edited audio for podcasts and presentations for tech companies. So if I had one of those jobs in the hopper, I would spend a few hours, especially on Tuesdays and Thursdays, working on that and completing that job.
0: So this was something you did on the computer at home?
1: Right. I mean, I guess what I'm saying it boils down to is I spent a lot of time on my computer, whether it was for leisure or for work. And that was interesting because I would have loved to, say, listen to music, but when I was working, I was working in audio, and so I could not. And so I was able to do that more often when I was, you know, playing a video game or something, but not as often as I would like. And I was usually too tired to practice. I basically sort of ceased being an active musician for uh, a while there, especially at the beginning, six months to a year that I was first in Seattle. I still had, you know, my musical education. I still had a lot of knowledge about it. I wasn't really connected to anyone to teach with or to work with or to play with. And also, I was back on dialysis, so I had extremely low energy. I slept a ton and I I basically did four things. I slept, I ate, I hung out with you, and I played video games or kind of, or like did some work occasionally. But when I say part time, I don't mean it was like 20 hours a week. I mean, like often it was maybe five hours a week and I would finish that project and then it was done until another one came through. So it was also kind of lonely because, yeah, I had some people I could talk to, but, um, you know, you were at school a lot. So sometimes in the afternoons, especially Tuesdays and Thursdays, I knew the way you walked home on the Burks gilman Trail. And so I would head out to come meet you, which was fun. But that w- that was pretty much the day-to-day. Like, not a lot of stuff.
0: So when you're on dialysis and you have on days and off days, yeah. the on days are more exhausting.
1: Right. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a real up and down cycle over and over and over again because like Monday morning, I would feel my worst because I had just had two days off of dialysis. And so all the toxins had built up the most then. And I would go in, have dialysis, and feel better for about an hour until sort of the process caught up with me. So I feel better enough to drive home and probably make myself some lunch and have lunch. And then about the time that was all done, then it was like, uh-oh, now I'm sort of springing back from that, all the changes that just happened rapidly on dialysis. And then I'd be real tired for the rest of the day. You know, able to do stuff often, but not high-impact, heavy, important big stuff, and then usually go to bed kind of early, wake up and feel pretty good, relatively speaking, on, say, Tuesday morning, and then throughout the day feel a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse, like pretty incrementally until in the evening I would be really very tired, um, mentally pretty foggy, and really ready for dialysis again. And then the whole thing would start all over again on Wednesday morning. And that's just day to day, day to day. And there are sometimes bigger swings, smaller swings, sometimes depending on like how much fluid I put on in between sessions, sometimes depending on, oh, maybe I thought I could have this one thing to eat and it turns out actually it had more potassium than I hoped. Probably really delicious, but you know, uh oh. But for the most part, it you know, just kind of swinging back and forth pretty regularly in a very predictable but annoying pattern day in, day out, week in, week out, like that.
0: And while you were doing in center dialysis and I was at University of Washington, we did take several trips. We did traveling in center dialysis. Yeah, I think the big fun one that we did together was we went down to Anaheim, California, Mm -hmm. because that was the year that DCI had their finals on the West Coast, Yeah, the World Championships, and that's maybe the only time they've done that, certainly the last time they ever did it. Yeah, it's
1: definitely the last time, one of the few.
0: And we really wanted to go to the DCI finals, because that's Drum and Bugle Corps, that's how we met, we really wanted to see the shows, and that was something that was really important, that we would get to do that, kind of the one and only time we'd have the opportunity to go to World Championships again.
1: Right, without traveling to Indiana or something, which seemed impossible.
0: And we knew that that was going to be the last time ever, and we really wanted to go see World Championships. Mm -hmm. So how did you get that set up?
1: (laughs) Well, as I think I mentioned several episodes ago where we talked about how this is possible, I mentioned that it's a, a major pain in the butt. And this was my first time doing it on my own, because when I'd lived at home with my parents, my mom took care of a lot of those things. In some ways, I think it was a little bit easier for me to do it than it had been for her, because by that time, there was more internet. You could go to a dialysis company's website, and they would have a place where you could look for centers. You could search by, say, zip code or city. And That was super useful because we knew exactly where we were going to be. We were going to be staying at a hotel that was very near to the Rose Bowl. So we knew exactly where it was and we wanted to find a place that was close by there. That's always sort of the first step because you have to find a place and then you go to your people and you say, I'm going to be traveling. I think that this center is a good place or maybe here are some other options and then either they say, great, we will reach out and start the process. Or they say, cool, call them and make sure they have an open seat when you're going. And so I was like, okay. So I did that. I made those phone calls. Um, they got all the paperwork they needed to together. I think that they were um, part of the same company. And so that facilitated a lot of stuff. They had a nationwide network, and also an actual nationwide computer database. So you could just say, tag this person to go over here and stuff like that, which made my life easier.
0: Yeah. And they're very incentivized to keep you in the family.
1: Oh, yeah. Because they, I mean, my insurance paid multiple thousands of dollars just for one session. So yeah, it was very worth their while to keep me there. So I, I had hooked up with some center. I Don't remember even where it was, but, you know, it was near the Rose Bowl somewhere. We got all the paperwork, and they handed me a packet of things, and I'd signed everything and made everything good. And the only problem, as I recall, was that it had to be extremely early in the morning. Like, I think I had to wake up at 3 or 4 a.m. to get there on time. Yeah. That's not fun. I was on vacation, (laughs) but I, of course, agreed to that because that gave us the most freedom to then do the things we wanted to do on our trip because we were only there for four days or something, and we wanted to do the cool things every day that we were there to do. So I went. I woke up super early, had a little bit of trouble finding it because I didn't yet have like... Google Maps on my phone because that wasn't a thing quite yet, but I found it fairly easily. Went in. It was a pretty nice center. It was also insanely early in the morning. They were, they were very nice. It was one of those situations though where they said, Hey, here's the open chair that we have to have. It just so happens that it's the jankiest chair in the facility that still works. So like, getting it to recline and go back up was a bit of a process usually I needed somebody else to help me with, especially since I only had one arm. And oh, by the way, the TV in front of this one is broken. <laughs> so they were, they were observing the letter of the law or the agreement. They're not law, but the agreement that you're supposed to have one chair at least available for visitors. But it was also like, oops, it's not great. I didn't care because We had gone to bed a little late, and I had to get up at three, and so I was like, this is fine, you're wonderful, this is Venus, this is arterial, plug me in, they did a great job, and I slept the whole time, and I got up, they let me off the machine, and we weighed me, and it was fine. Like, it was totally okay, I thanked them very much, and went back to collect you, and then we spent a day doing the stuff that we had planned to do. And I think I only dialyzed once on that trip, we'd managed to schedule it, so that that only needed to happen that one time.
0: Right. Whenever we take a trip, it's sort of dialysis scheduling Jenga. Yeah. What is the actual purpose of the trip, the reason we're traveling? How many days do we have to stay there to work out when you're going to do dialysis? Is it we're staying extra days so that you can be on the machine and we have kind of one day of downtime? Or are we scheduling the flights and everything to cut it as close as we can so you have fewer dialysis stays and we get you back home to do (laughs) dialysis as fast as possible?
1: Right, right. and. This one was actually fairly convenient, as I recall.
0: Because the drum corps shows were in the evenings.
1: Right, right. That's one thing. And also, final finals are Saturday. And so we were able to just go, okay, we can travel this day. We can dialyze this day. Go here and then go to Disneyland and go back to finals and only do it once. Hooray. Like, that was pretty great.
0: The other big trip we had to do while you were in center dialysis was to north carolina (laughs) yeah for your sister's wedding
1: (laughs) yeah and that was a serious hassle that sucked yeah that that was a huge hassle it was just so many things were inconvenient about dialysis on that trip from the very beginning just trying to schedule things and find a dialysis center that had a chair at a time that was even somewhat convenient that was even Kind of close to where we were staying, to where the wedding was being held, all of those things was like not happening. It was just so hard. Finally, I was able to find some place that was, I think, merely half an hour or more. It might have even been 45 minutes away from where we were that had a chair open kind of at an okay time. But even as it was, it was at the same time as one of the the wedding events. So we had to miss that because I had to be on dialysis. Then when we started to travel, we left, I think, on Friday. And then I was going to dialyze Saturday morning. And all of your travel nightmares that you can imagine kind of came true for us that day. There was crazy weather Going on in one city, so landing in the other for a connecting flight was a problem. And then once we were there, we had, I think, missed the connection, and the next plane was delayed by, I think, six or eight hours.
0: It got crazy. Yeah. And what was supposed to be, we're going to arrive in North Carolina that night, became, we are spending most of the night in an airport in the connecting city.
1: Yes. Everything just went wrong. And so we were waiting in the connecting city.
0: And started to get scared.
1: Yeah, really scared because I had to have dialysis. And if I missed that appointment, it wasn't like at my regular center where I could call them up. This, I don't think ever happened, but where you can call your regular center and say, hey, this is Ari. This crazy thing happened. I'm 5 hours away or whatever I can't make it in can I come in and dialyze tonight or just as a one time thing maybe tomorrow morning as sort of a last resort and usually they can accommodate that cuz you're a regular patient and they can do that in this case I had a single scheduled time they had no other slots open they don't know me they don't necessarily care and we were trying to tell the gate attendant like hey there's an actual serious medical thing that isn't a medical emergency until it might be now.
0: Right. You If you keep us in this connecting city any longer, we're going to have to leave the airport and maybe go to a hospital so that you can get dialysis. Right. And I remember thinking about that. I don't even remember what city we were in. It was maybe Chicago.
1: It was either Chicago or St. Louis maybe?
0: And I was thinking, okay, so – <laughs> How does this work? And then right. if we're here in this random city, where where am, am I going to have to find a hotel or will they let me stay in the hospital? Mm-hmm. What's that going to do to everything else? It was a really weird situation and I think because we had talked about that, we did get priority on one of the rescheduled flights.
1: Yeah, I think we did. And that was, you know, that was nice, but it was still terrifying. Because yeah, like instead of landing at 7 or 8 in the evening, we ended up being on like a red eye. Right. To get to North Carolina, uh, to Raleigh. And that was really scary. And so we landed. I think we probably got a few hours of sleep at the hotel. And then we had to drive to the someplace to, the, to get dialysis. And, um, and we got there and I think we've referenced this center before, but it was not a great experience. No. Health-wise, for me, it was basically fine. Like, I know myself and what I need pretty well. I'm a very compliant patient, I and I'm an educated patient. That's really good. And I was really glad of that, especially on this trip. And I was also really glad that my techs and my nurse at my home dialysis center had provided really clear documentation because they were very good at their jobs, because... The whole system at this place seemed not well run in certain kind of scary ways. So one of the things was we arrived at the place and they were kind of like, oh, you're here. okay." And we were on a schedule still. You know, there were there was an event that we were were missing Saturday morning afternoon. But then there were two or three after that. We needed to get on the machine at, let's say, 10.00 so that we could get off when we were supposed to get off, so that we could go straight from there to one thing, and then from there to another thing and another thing.
0: Yeah, you were running a marathon, and it was <laughs> intricately paced, and clockwork timing was required.
1: Yeah, and sort of the the compromise of our timing was, okay, we, we have to miss this thing, so that, and then everything else will work. And we got there, and they're like, oh, okay, have a seat. And, you know, sometimes that happens in a medical facility, but I said okay, but I have an appointment at this time, and I'm here, and it's that's in 15 minutes or whatever. You know, We timed it pretty well. And they're like, oh, sure. And we sat there, and there were people who were in the room who seemed to have been in the waiting room for a very long time. Hours. Hours. And so we were sitting in the waiting room, and it seemed like, like I said, like lots of people were just kind of there. They had to just sort of wait for the day. Most of the people arriving were not arriving because they had driven themselves, but because they were being brought by ambulance or medical transport, which means that they were not super healthy, which (laughs) is generally not a great sign when almost everybody is arriving that way. They were also generally younger on average than other dialysis patients that I usually dialyzed with. Still older than me, but it made me concerned about the quality of care at the center
0: Right, and while we were waiting, you see people arriving late, and it turns out they're arriving late, not arriving late to get on the machine for this session. They were originally scheduled for the session that ha- that is ending now.
1: Yeah, and that seemed normal and fine and just the way things go because there's a lot of delays.
0: Right, that seemed like the regular standard operating procedure at that facility. No one seemed surprised by it. No one seemed like, oh, we're having a crazy day. And in <laughs> fact, yeah. it became clear to me as they put you on the machine finally and told me, I could not sit with you. I had to wait in the waiting room for oh, four that hours. was terrible. Yeah. And while I was there, I was noticing, oh, people have learned to just arrive at the center three hours late. Right. They know that they're not going to get them on the machine in time. And so once it's reached that point where people arrive that late because they know you're not going to get them in on time, you've created a big problem that you can't dig yourself out from under in terms yeah. of everyone's patterns. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this center is not just to bag on it and be negative and kind of snarky. Of course. But to highlight something we've talked about a little bit before, almost kind of in passing, and it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. Yeah. But... Privilege and race and class affect the kind of medical care you get. Yeah. And in this case, this was a dialysis center serving a community that was primarily African American. Uh huh. I think you were the only white patient there that day. Maybe. So it had a room full of patients and a room full of people on the waiting room couches who were black and attendants and people behind the desk who were white.
1: Mostly, yeah.
0: And it very much seemed to me that the people behind the desk. Didn't really care about their patient's time,
1: no, or the no. time,
0: and the or the time that was being wasted, or the fact that these people might have other things going on in their lives. And getting on a dialysis machine on time is serious. Like we've talked about with your cycle day to day, it seriously affects your health and how yeah. you feel. It seriously affects your ability to get a job if you have one or are able to maintain one. Mm-hmm. It affects whatever transit you have going on. Oh, yeah. If your family needs to take care of you or pick you up or whatever's going on, if you have child care issues, having a predictable schedule medically and life-wise is a serious issue. Mm-hmm. And these people did not care about their patient's time or their lives. Yeah. And they were getting care that's worse than the care that you were getting when we left and went back to Seattle.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: And, you know, we were tourists to that Experience. We got to go home. You got to go to your nice dialysis center in the lily-white Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And these people stayed there. They're probably still getting dialysis at that center if they're lucky. Right. And they're probably still getting bad service. Yeah. And it's really upsetting.
1: Yeah, it, it it's really upsetting. <laughs> um, I mean, there's the other thing where people who had been in the waiting room before I got there – presumably for quite some time, I know we're in the waiting room for, I don't know, half an hour, an hour after I got on the machine. And a little bit- That's
0: absolutely true.
1: Yeah. A a little bit, that's because we were white, we were visitors, and I probably advocated for myself a little bit, but I was very tired and very exhausted. And I had you saying, we have a schedule, we have to keep this- Oh, I know I had murder in
0: my eyes after that
1: flight. You did. And so, like, we got better service. And that, I mean, like, selfishly, okay, great. But. It sucks. It just sucks. It was not, I felt bad the whole time I was there. I felt, like, I felt really physically terrible because I had not really gotten any sleep and I needed that and all kinds of other little factors that contributed to that, not to mention, you know, dialysis. But also emotionally, it just it felt awful. There were people who would be in distress, not like serious, oh my goodness, terrible, terrible distress, but like they needed help. They were maybe having pain. Sometimes that happens on dialysis. You should stop the machine and give them some fluid. There's some really basic things that you should do who were asking for help for, I don't know, half an hour, longer. There were alarms that were going off, unattended for a really long time. And honestly, most of the alarms that happen in a dialysis center don't need to be attended to other than the fact that they're loud. An alarm goes off when your blood pressure finishes being taken, which happens every half hour or every hour, depending on how it's set. But that needs to be attended to so you can look at it and write it down. And there were enough personnel, they just weren't doing it. You can even just go, oh, it's a blood pressure alarm, and mute it for five minutes if you need to. And that wasn't even happening sometimes. It was just, it was really atrocious. I think the the other weird thing, to go back a little bit just to arriving and noticing, as we did while waiting in the waiting room, how like late people were showing up and stuff, is that, this is going to sound a little weird and backwards maybe, if I had shown up to any other dialysis center I went to regularly, even half an hour late, not to mention an hour or two, as some of these patients were, for the reasons you've described, I would have gotten a serious lecture, a serious talking to, and they only would have put me on the machine if it did not mess up the rest of the schedule. They would have essentially, not denied me care, because they would have said, if you really need to dialyze, we'll call the hospital, and we might even call out an ambulance for you to go there. But they would not have said, Because you showed up late, we'll just accommodate that.
0: Right. Everybody else is just going to be late or shoulder the burden.
1: Right. And and I want to be really clear that I'm not saying that the patients were at fault there. The patients had been given a really terrible situation and were responding to the situation on the ground, which was that not only could they show up two hours late, so why not? It wasn't why not. They should show up two hours late because that was how the schedule, which was a non-existent schedule essentially, worked. Yeah, they didn't want you in there, which is a very strange thing. That's only happened there and maybe one other place, I think, and it's never clear why. Sometimes it's like, oh, you might be in the way while we're bustling around, but not really.
0: It mostly reads as an indication to me either of extreme fussiness, right? We're so worried about (laughs) safety, we don't want somebody there. And that's the good side of the coin. And on the other side of the coin, sometimes it's, we don't want anyone here looking at us or seeing the way we're doing things, which was the vibe I got from this.
1: Yeah, I I got that vibe too. And I, (laughs) before I realized that that was the vibe I was getting, I was saying, no, 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 I, I want her here because sometimes that's what needs to happen is you need like permission from the patient. So I was making sure that they had it and making sure it was a request and it just wasn't happening. So uh, the last thing I think that I'll say about that dialysis center is that I also got worse dialysis. Every once in a while, you have, especially while I was in Seattle, but anytime I've been on dialysis, every once in a while, I would get off the machine and maybe I'd gain some real weight. Maybe there had been a slight missetting in the machine. Some little thing had happened and essentially too much fluid had been taken off. And so I would have, it would have a heavier impact on me.
0: You'd be more tired. You'd be more, ha drained.
1: Right. Um, and we we laugh at that joke a bit, but that is actually the feeling that you have. And that day, you know, and it was important that I was able to be a real person because it was a family event and seeing all these people, like, we were trying to be friendly and part of and involved in what was going on, like, I was really not doing well that day. And I I managed to push through it mostly, but it was not great dialysis. And that's on top of everything else was just extra frustrating.
0: I just, I want to say again, because I think a lot of people don't want to believe this and don't want to believe that this disparity exists in Mm -hmm. medical care. And there are plenty of things out there that you can read that talk about how non-white patients and women patients Don't get adequate care for pain. They're expected to bear more pain sometimes. That's been sufficiently documented. Sure. And I want to add my voice to say this is something we have observed. Yeah. We've watched people who are not white get worse care.
1: Right. Right. And I mean, I, I can say that also now teaching in, you know, East New York with a primarily African American and Latino Hispanic population that like I know that's true also of my students and their families, um, from Personal stories that I hear all the time, just kind of casually. But this was definitely, like you said, coming from the lily white Northwest, a really noticeable shock, like ice water to the face. Like, what is going on here? And then it, you know, it personally impacted my quality of life that weekend. Um, I, <laughs> so, so we did dialysis like that and it wasn't great.
0: Right, and it's uncomfortable to talk about because I feel like we both want to stay in our lane. Sure. And not get up on a soapbox about an experience that isn't ours. Right. But I do feel like there's an obligation to talk about this because it's a thing that we've seen.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For real.
0: And so to awkwardly transition (laughs) and change topics, I guess, we took one final trip that we can just talk about quickly because in Mm -hmm. some ways it was the easiest. Yes. We visited family of yours in Hawaii.
1: Yeah, and you can dialize in Hawaii. <laughs> and that was, yeah, easy, yeah, relatively speaking.
0: Yeah, we were able to get it scheduled and coordinated. And I think, especially in contrast with this North Carolina trip, I think there's a stereotype about island time and
1: <laughs> yeah. people
0: who live in paradise and their non-inclination to keep to schedules.
1: Right, right.
0: But that's a stereotype and it's a cliche. And they got you on those machines on time. Everything ran smoothly. Mm-hmm. and. hmm you know, it's Hawaii. There was a nice little porch outside where I could read a book.
1: Yeah, it was very nice. And it was easy, relatively speaking. And all of the all of the people that I usually saw medically in Seattle were super jealous that I was going to go um, to Hawaii. I think they were also kind of gratified when we came back from North Carolina to sort of touch back on that. When I said, like, this happened and this happened and this happened. Because I felt like I had to tell somebody. And part of the thing, too, was it was not part of the same company network, and they were shocked. Um, I think it might have even resulted in a phone call to someone, I don't know who, from my nurse. But, you know, it it was nice, this is a weird way to say that, I guess, but it was nice to be able to go to people who cared for me regularly and say, like, I've always known and said and told you, thank you for the great care you give me, but here I've just seen a stark contrast. So really, really thank you, because I know how bad maybe it can be.
0: We both wanted to share stories about traveling on dialysis, Mm -hmm. because dialysis can be a bleak experience. Onerous. Right. If I Mm -hmm. go with you into a center sometimes, and this is going to sound bad, but you go in and you see all these other patients who are older than you, who seem tireder and weaker than you, Mm -hmm. and... It feels like zombies plugged into machines. Yeah. There's this kind of glazed over, very tired look. It can be a very depressing experience. Yeah. And feeling weaker and more fatigued and tired can be really hard. But life can be lived on dialysis. Yeah. And all this stuff, we're talking about travel stress and everything has to go smoothly and it's hard to coordinate things, but it is sometimes worth the effort to go out and live life and yeah, try to get some visitor dialysis in Hawaii. You won't be able to do tons of island stuff all the time. You know, maybe make the trip a little longer, and then you can have some dialysis days programmed in. But it is worth it to try to go out and seize happiness if you can.
1: Yeah. I would also say more broadly, uh I, I've been thinking about this a lot as we've been making the podcast. Forgive me if this sounds a little circular, but when I was in grad school, one of my favorite professors was really fascinated with the idea of essential contradictions. And because he was fascinated by it, and because he sort of would often bring things back to this idea, I am now often fascinated by it. And my time in Seattle and our time in Seattle is one of those time periods where I feel like that's the most stark. That I can pretty easily view many time periods or parts of my life through the lens of essential contradictions. But... In Seattle, I had this dialysis thing, this ebb and flow of not fun kind of terribleness or low grade zombieism <laughs> and not really doing very much for at least for the first six months to a year, not really being able to do much other than kind of play computer games and eat and sleep and all of those things. But at the same time, to me, that's sort of the beginning of some of the best times and parts of my life because it's when we started living together and having that kind of relationship and like that was really special and meaningful to me and so at the same time i have some of the worst things going on that i'm on dialysis which i just truly abhor and the best things, which is spending time with you and getting to know you better and better and better and doing fun things, which sometimes includes traveling to DCI or to Hawaii or other, other things that we did. And so, you know, I, I feel like sometimes when I talk about things, I'm saying, well, and dialysis is so bad and this was really terrible. And I want to be clear that, like, yeah, that's hard, and I really don't like it, and so my emotions about it color my sort of factual storytelling, but there's almost always another aspect of that time period, which is there's pretty much always something good to great going on on the other side of it, or at the other times, or enabled by that. I could not have lived with you and done the things that I was doing with you without dialysis, without that awfulness. Those things were all all there at once.
0: Okay, and we're going to transition here a little bit because I think the next thing we're going to talk about to the extent that you feel comfortable discussing it is ED.
1: (laughs) Oh, right. Okay.
0: So just for the audience, we're not going to get explicit, but if conversations about sex or sexuality make you uncomfortable, skip ahead.
1: (laughs) All right. So yeah, one of the side effects of dialysis is often ED or erectile dysfunction. That has to do with blood pressure stuff. It has to do with, I mean, basically it's everything that's blood pressure, but, um, and also your body just doesn't feel well. It's, it's entirely a, a physical issue. And so, you know, I was living with this wonderful person with whom I was incredibly in love and I wanted to be physical and so and you know sometimes was able to do that but often was not and so I said something to my awesome doctor and he sent me to a specialist the a urologist and he started talking about all kinds of things. Um, he said, well, you know, there's these pills, but there's also, <laughs> he said very scary words, uh, things like surgery and um, devices and things like that that I could use. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm 30. I don't, what? <laughs> I don't want to be doing this. But uh, we did some blood tests and we agreed that we would start with a pill. And at the time, there were only three. And there's still the three big ones, I think, that are advertised on TV. But um, one or two of the three had maybe drug interactions with some of the meds I was taking and were uh, contraindicated for people with kidney problems. So it became very clear, oh, I should take the other one. So I did. I did have it. It tended to work. It was nice to have that. But it was, you know, difficult. It's not uh, fun. To be thinking like, here I am, like, like I said, I'm 30. Why am I taking a pill for sex? And mostly I think I dealt with it, but it was sometimes hard on our relationship because we wanted to be like young and spontaneous. And when you have to take a pill an hour or eight hours or whatever it was in advance, it's much more difficult to actually do that. And that's not the kind of thing that we were, I think, prepared to deal with. And I think maybe you can speak about that more. I was going to tell a story about sort of another aspect of that whole business.
0: Yeah, I think we should tell that story because it's funny. Sure. But we're not just discussing this because we enjoy getting into really specific and perhaps embarrassing details on a podcast. Right. But because this is such a common side effect of dialysis, of Mm -hmm. kidney issues, and because it Relates to sex because it's related to ideas about masculinity and there's all this embarrassing baggage that goes along with it. People don't talk about it. Right. And that's one of the ways that it can feel lonely or isolated. Really, really common and somewhat fixable. Yeah. Or not fixable, but livable. Yeah. You know, you can figure out ways to make things work. And again, I don't want to get into a lot of specific detail here. Of course not. But Yeah, it was a big impact on a relationship. You were in your 30s. I was in my very early 20s, and it wasn't really a headspace that either of us were prepared to be in so quickly. Right. And I will say that one of the things that helped me deal with it Mm -hmm. was actually reading a lot of Dan Savage columns. (laughs) Yeah. He writes a column called Savage Love. He has a podcast. Yeah. um, Much more explicit than this one because it's about sex and sex advice.
1: Way more explicit, yeah.
0: But- It wasn't like I ever wrote in with a question, right? but reading a lot of his writing, and he's got a really pretty open Mm -hmm. view about a lot of things, and it really opened up my mind in terms of thinking about things don't have to be just one way. Right. And sexual dysfunction, not just for kidney problems, not just for people on dialysis, it hits lots of people with chronic illness and disability. yeah. And being able to expand your thinking a little bit and think about trying different things and seeing what works and... Getting into a different headspace, Mm -hmm. you know, you can live a healthy and happy sex life and that is important to overall health. Yeah. It's not something that you can just abandon and put on a shelf because you're a disabled person. So that helped for me. I don't know if it would help for other people, (laughs) but changing my thinking a lot around those issues helped both of us.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think, you know, you were talking about isolating and things. And this is another aspect that's sort of specific to Alport syndrome in that. Because I was super young, basically, on dialysis, this is the kind of thing that, you know, your average patient on dialysis is maybe their 50s, 60s, 70s. And so that kind of thing, ED might be the kind of thing that they're going to deal with anyway, just because they're older. And so, you know, if they're dealing with it, probably their peers and friends might be in to indulge in some cliches, then maybe you have a conversation out on the golf course, With your fellow retirees, like, yeah, I'm on that blue pill. Oh, me too. But hey, it works, right? And who was I going to talk to about that?
0: Right. None of our (laughs) friends in college (laughs) had this experience.
1: No, not even remotely. And, and like you said, you know, there's, there's ideas about masculinity and other stuff. And so I felt, I don't know, kind of embarrassed about it. And you know, I shouldn't be, but at the same time, it's not the kind of thing you're just like, Hey, so check this out. You know, you don't just start talking about that to people. So sort of with that in mind, uh, we lived sort of like across a road and then a parking lot from our grocery store. There were lots of other stores, it was sort of a mini mall kind of place. But in the grocery store was our pharmacy. And I went there all the time because I took a lot of meds and I was really familiar with it. They mostly knew me by my face and by name. When I got this prescription, and it, it was for Cialis, so I went to the pharmacy, and I dropped off the prescription, and then I had to come back another day. So I came back. I think you were with me.
0: Yeah, we went together.
1: We went together. We did our grocery shopping, and then we stopped at the pharmacy to pick up the prescription. Uh, and so when we got to the pharmacy, it was weirdly super crowded.
0: Every day chair was packed. People were sitting in the chair that's next to that little blood pressure tester machine just to have a place to sit.
1: Right. It was packed. There were like nine people in line. There was all kinds of stuff going on. It was I don't know what was up. And there was a face that I didn't recognize behind the counter, which was unusual. But, you know, you hire a new person. That's fine. So I finally got up to the front of the line and I said, you know, I have a pickup for Aaron Deckard. And he said, okay, And If you've ever been to like a grocery store pharmacy, especially, you kind of know that it's not just a counter. There's like a counter and then there's a space back there and then there's often another counter and like it's sort of deep, weirdly. And he went back to wherever they kept the prescriptions and clearly couldn't find it. And you know the way you spell my last name is a little bit unusual compared to how it's pronounced and so sometimes people have trouble with that. So he did what is not unusual at a pharmacy, which is to be like, hey, how do you spell it? And I told him, he was like, Oh, okay. And then there was like another long pause. And then he started calling out weirdly as he started moving further and further into the pharmacy. And I'm hearing impaired. So I'm already like, dude, what are you doing? I don't know if I can hear you. And he starts calling out like, Hey, what's, what's the prescription for?
0: And we're standing right next to each other we're at standing the desk,
1: right next to each other. So here we are, a young couple wanting our, um, penis pills and there's, you know, really, in reality, there were like, like I said, nine or 10 people, but at that point, it felt like the entire football stadium had just crowded in there. And so I was like, um, uh, Cialis. And obviously he couldn't hear me because he was walking away from me. And I was like, and he's like, no, what's it for? What's it for? And I said, Cialis. And honestly, had I been slightly less embarrassed or a little bit more like, thoughtful i would have said i would have like waved him over and been like dude you know just come here i'll tell you and if he had read any of the social cues also he might have noticed and so he kept asking me and i kept having to like say it a little bit louder and a little bit yeah. louder what's
0: the prescription for
1: <laughs> and i was like see yeah uh, uh, and you know more and more people are noticing this and the thing is like there's a thing where everybody notices and is, like, embarrassed for you, right? And like, oh, man, we don't, I didn't want to know that about them. And then there's a thing where everybody sort of feels pity for you because they know it's embarrassing, and they're like, I would like to not notice this and give you that privacy, but because they can't, it's even more obvious. Yeah. And that's basically what was happening is – Oh, my God, this poor youngish guy with his girlfriend or wife, we don't know, is standing there having to yell louder and louder. Bellow
0: Cialis across the...
1: Bellow the name of his pill for his genitals across this pharmacy. And, like, I wanted to wither up and die. They all wanted to disappear. And this guy keeps just shouting, like, no, seriously, what's it for? Like I said, in my memory, the entire Husky Stadium, which is, we live near there, which is why I say that, like, full of people was there staring at me while I shouted this for hours. In reality, it was like two or three minutes, and it wasn't that many people. But at some point, the actual pharmacist came into the pharmacy proper from the back, like from the storeroom, immediately noticed what was going on, looked mortified no! yeah <laughs> like if you could slow motion dive on top of a situation that's what he did you know he was a professional he knew exactly what was going on he even probably remembered what the drug was i was there for and he immediately walked over placed his hand on the guy on the guy's shoulder very swiftly was like you do not like ask a patient to yell their private business no matter what pill it is across the thing go up there and ask him and so he kind of came all like chastised and said I'm sorry what is the medication for and I looked at him I was like it's Cialis and then he had this look on his face like oh, my God, what have I been doing? Because, you know, he's not a terrible person. He just was new. <laughs> and so he went and, like, rummaged through a bunch of stuff and was like, okay, here it is, sir. I'm so sorry. And then, like, fled. And so then I got to, like, do some kind of weird version of a walk of shame, which shouldn't have been shameful. But and everybody looked at me. I it Again, in my memory, I feel like everybody sort of tips their hat as sad piano music plays. Like, well, there goes that one, you know? And so I i we i got my medication and I left and that never happened again obviously like i, I feel like there's c- certain lessons about privacy and being aware of that and um practices at pharmacies that everybody knew except for the new guy that i just happened to get that day but don't ask somebody to yell the name of their medication please
0: so we talked about how there's this very real impact on our intimate relationship that we both yeah. kind of had to get medical assistance for or Mentally wrap our heads around, yeah, do you think there were other ways in which your health at this time impacted our relationship?
1: Absolutely. Um, a, a really big one. I, we've talked before several times about sort of the the mental fogginess that comes with dialysis and in uh, uremia because that's it's the same thing in this case. And for me, it was very severe. And I I think I've even mentioned that sometimes when I'm Uremic, my brain sort of like fills in a memory that it can't find with one that might make sense. And I'm not sure how often that happens. I don't think it was very often, but it was occasional. And during this time period, that noticeably happened. I was very foggy. I would think something was true and go, well, I know this. And you would say it's not true. That's a really challenging, difficult thing to have within a relationship, because I am and was used to really being able to trust my brain, trust my intellect, trust my memory. And that's that's even a little strange at that point in my life, because I had been through a time period where I was literally hallucinating terrible things. I had been through four and a half, five years of dialysis previously, where I knew I wasn't clear. I had had uremia, where I thought it was okay to take a nap during rehearsal in the room with the rehearsal. I had had all of these experiences that point to maybe don't always trust your your memory and your brain and your thought processes. But at the same time, like for anybody, not just me, if you can't trust your mind, what can you trust? You know, and I, I know I'm not the only person to have this kind of experience in various situations, but It's terrifying and weird. And then it's also a challenge when you are in a romantic partnership with someone that you trust very much, with someone like you who has an incredible memory. This is not just to butter you up because you're sitting in front of me, but you know this about yourself. Everybody who knows you knows that this is true, that you remember very, very clearly everything. It doesn't have to be just a conversation or a TV show or a movie or a book you remember things. And it's not like you're memorizing stuff, but a semi-famous word or phrase from something will come up, and you're like, oh, yeah, of course, that's from this. And I will, even when I'm not foggy, go, I know I've read that. That's famous. And I might remember, oh, so-and-so said that. But you're like, no, it's this and this. This is what is said before it. This is the context for that quote. This is why it's important. And this is the time period in which that famous person was saying it. You know all these details because you just remember. And so for me to essentially claim sometimes, well, this happened, and you're like, uh, no, it didn't. And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah, it did. I remember. Um, And if that sounds petty and small, because sometimes you have petty and small dumb arguments and relationships, we had a lot of those little conflicts that sometimes became really big conflicts because... My brain was untrustworthy and because you were not used to interfacing with it. And honestly, I wasn't used to interfacing with my own self, which is a very strange way to say that. I didn't have the tools to explain even or understand sometimes, which I would need to have to to explain what was going on inside my brain or what was not going on inside my brain. And so you were just going sometimes my spouse is a crazy person, not like acting crazy, but like saying things that sound insane because they're so wrong and they're demonstrably wrong. And
0: it's a good thing. I don't care about being right.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, can you imagine that would have been really tough? So, you know, it's the, it's that kind of, you have an immense certainty, obviously about yourself because you've earned it. And you also have a really fantastic memory and a a brain and things like that. And, and, and my brain, which has at times been pretty great, a thing I've been proud of and been able to use very well, and often I was still pretty smart. Yeah. But unpredictably, because often I was like, oh, I'm totally normal, and then I wasn't, and I just didn't know. And so we ran into that over and over and over again because it would seem to me like you were um, lying And it would seem to you like I was lying or just wrong and then being stubborn. And mostly it was just my brain was not working the way that a normal person's brain does. And we had to kind of trial by fire figure that out over the course of those two years or so.
0: Yeah, and it wasn't like we were having fights all the time. Oh, no. And it wasn't like you were some kind of Alzheimer's patient or something that bad.
1: Felt like it sometimes, though.
0: Right, but the weird thing was it's normal, 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 and then this thing would strike at a weird time unpredictably. Yeah. Oh, Ari remembers eight weeks ago completely different than I do. I did not realize that we were, our paths had diverged in this way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's been operating thinking that this happened and that totally didn't happen.
0: Right, and it's something where you have to kind of, again, you're a little bit early in a relationship, you've just moved in together, and suddenly you have this real test of communication and trust and yeah. your ability to sort things out with each other. But again, I think it's one of those examples of we had to figure out big things or weird things before small things.
1: Yeah. And in a way, this was figuring out both at once. Yeah. That was challenging. And that had, <laughs> this is going to sound really dark and stuff, but I don't mean it that way. It had consequences for years after that because we had figured out these sort of pathways and workarounds and, I don't know, ways of communicating and things based in that mode of existence and relationship.
0: Right. And then you got better.
1: Right. And then we were still kind of in that mode, but not wanting to be. But that didn't work in this new paradigm. You know, that became its own challenge later. But the challenge at the time was, oh, right, dialysis brain sucks.
0: And- the next thing that we did that really changed your brain and your health and kind of everything in our lives was stopping the in-center dialysis and moving to home dialysis and home hemo, which is what we're going to talk about in our next episode. Yeah. So now we're going to move on to some listener questions. Oh, good. We've got a few, and they all have to deal with your hearing. What? Never not funny. <laughs> so these questions are from Sean, and he says, I assume you take your hearing aids out to sleep. Mm -hmm. Do you have a vibrating alarm clock, or can you hear the one you have without your hearing aids?
1: Well, since I've had a smartphone, I've just used the alarm on that, and it's been enough. Before that, I honestly don't remember. I think I did have an actual alarm clock for a number of years.
0: You had an alarm clock with a bright lamp attached to it, that when that alarm went off, it would go beep, 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 and then the lamp would flash brightly. Right, right. Which didn't actually wake you up. What it did was wake me up and then I could shake you awake.
1: (laughs) Right. So maybe I'll start this from a different direction. (laughs) There are a number of products for hearing impaired people to accommodate them. In fact, going back to uh, central Washington, when I said, Hey, I have this hearing impairment to the disability accommodations office. One of the things they suggested is, oh, we could put... There's federal money, I think, to put flashing fire alarm devices like on the wall of my apartment or my dorm.
0: So that lights would flash.
1: Right, because... So that if you were
0: completely deaf, you'd see flashing lights.
1: Exactly. And I'm not completely deaf. And um, anybody who lives in the world knows that fire alarms are incredibly loud. I can hear them even without my hearing aids in. So that was never a consideration for me. But as a kid, especially once I got hearing aids, I was always a really deep sleeper. I'm less so now, but I had an alarm clock and then I had a secondary alarm clock who went by mom and she was very patient, but it was a pain in her butt (laughs) all the time to have to hear the alarm, know that I was sleeping through it you know it might wake me up a little but then like i could fall asleep again and i did and then have to come in and wake me up and then come in and wake me up again and the third time because i was a deep sleeper so those two things combined were really hard and so we went and got a vibrator attached to an alarm clock because what what they make is like there's regular like alarm clocks that you can get at a store and then you go to a specialty store for hearing aid people or for deaf people and they sell alarm clocks that have like plugs for attachments so we got one that had all the usual stuff plus a plug for a vibrator and that went under my pillow it was called a pillow vibrator and that didn't do much it shook the pillow a little bit and wasn't a big deal And then we got a much stronger one called a bed vibrator. And that was supposed to go between the box spring and the mattress and basically shake the whole bed and wake me up. And it was totally capable of doing that. We did that. It did shake the bed. didn't really wake me up. Or it didn't really, like, I didn't really respond to it. And what's funny is I remember feeling the vibration, but also in addition to the beeping of the alarm, what I would hear was I would actually hear the the thing vibrating. And so then our final step, and this sort of worked, I mean, you'd have to ask my parents, I think they would say, no, it didn't work, but it sort of worked as we took the bed vibrator and we made it a pillow vibrator. So a thing that was designed to shake the entire bed, we said, let's just put it under the pillow and see how it worked. And that like I said, kind of worked, but I remember hearing it more than just feeling it. Um But it is a weird way to wake up with your head going uh, 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 like that. So that was true like through high school. And I think then when I went to Lawrence, I didn't take it with me, probably because as a 19-year-old, I didn't want to be carrying anything called a vibrator. And then I think I was probably just sufficiently motivated that I woke up until, uh, I was, I was very sick kind of nothing was waking me up. And occasionally like my door was unlocked or something, friends would come and be like, dude, your alarm's been going off for two hours. What the heck are you doing? And I think I had a friend who sometimes would just like pound on my door until that added up to something that'd wake me up. Um, and then when I, I was, I had a girlfriend, she would come over and help sometimes. But, um, that was again, more a function of me being a really deep sleeper and being hearing impaired than just being hearing impaired. And so then eventually, I got this alarm clock that you could plug a lamp into, and that worked pretty well. But again, weirdly, as much as... Beg to differ. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But weirdly, while the flashing light did do something to kind of help wake me up, again, hearing the actual bulb flash on and off was the thing that tended to actually wake me up if and when it did. So all of that is to say, I take my hearing aids out when I sleep, and now my phone alarm wakes me up. And sometimes it takes a little longer than it should.
0: His second question is, will sounds that are loud enough to damage the hearing of someone with normal hearing also damage yours? Or since your hearing is already reduced, are you immune to that?
1: That's a really good question. And the short answer is, I don't really know. The longer answer is, here's some information I have. With the exception of, I think, the first pair of hearing aids I ever had, which were purely analog amplifiers. They had a microphone, and then they made the sound louder, and that got piped into my ear. Every hearing aid I've had since has been some form of digital. They've all been much more advanced, and they've all had some kind of compressor. In a couple of cases, they even had had a much more harsh thing called a limiter or a gate And all of those are audio devices that are sometimes used in recording situations or other audio situations or sound reinforcement that take in sound, evaluate it for decibel level and sometimes for frequency, and then make it softer, essentially. So a compressor takes the full size of the sound wave and makes it fit within a specified decibel level. My understanding of the reasoning for having those included in hearing aids is as sound protection, that you want to keep the hearing you have and not lose any more.
0: There have been times with your compressors where, let's say, some really loud event happens. We're walking and there's like a giant crash or a really, really loud siren or something else, and I will jump in surprise or even like my ears hurt, I'll put my hands up Mm -hmm. and you'll look over and go, oh was that loud?
1: Yeah, well sometimes I'm playing.
0: (laughs) But the compressor saved you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I I hope that sort of answers that that question. The answer is like I don't really know, but definitely hearing aids still have a lot of things in them that are designed to protect your hearing.
0: And now I'm going to move into my traditional last question. Okay. Which is, alright, how are you feeling this week?
1: (sighs) That's an interesting question. The, the the real answer is not great. I've been feeling extremely run down and I don't feel, you know, sick, like I don't feel stuffy or really have a cough or achy or any of those things like I would have the flu or something, but I've been feeling really run down. And to the point where I was noticing at some point during the week where I am still working to learn all my students' names, it's still the beginning of the school year, and I have a lot of strategies to do that. But I've been noticing that I've been sort of both fatigued and a little bit mentally foggy so that I'm not picking up names as quickly as I usually do. And because I'm fatigued, sometimes I'm just sort of glossing over a lot of my name sticking learning strategies that I use because I've been tired um, and tired isn't the right word. Like I've just been exhausted and that's just too much. And the fogginess plays into that. And That's not to say it's not like uremia. It's just like it's a real exhaustion. And it felt pretty specific to me. And so I called my nurse on, I want to say Friday, and left her a message saying, Hey, I feel anemic. I feel like I'm low on red blood cells. Um, I've been feeling really exhausted. And I know I had my blood taken about a month ago. So can you look at that and see what that looked like. And if I need another blood test, let me know so I can come in for that. So, and then it's been the weekend. I haven't heard back, but a little concerned about that. But I got some good sleep Friday night. I'm going to be going to bed a little bit earlier this week, I think, just to kind of take care of myself and see if maybe it's just a lack of sleep thing. That's probably not it. But yeah, I've been really exhausted more than I should be after the first or second week of school.
0: Well, (laughs) you left us on a cliffhanger we'll have to check back in that's right but i think we're gonna leave it there for now next week we'll talk all about home hemo which i think will be an interesting thing to talk to you about yeah
1: it was really interesting to do
0: if anybody wants episodes of the kidney cast they're all available with show notes on my website laramoris.com, l-a-r-r-a-m-o-r-r-i-s.com we're also on itunes and stitcher if you want to find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast, or on Twitter, at kidneycast. And if you've got questions or even just comments, listener mail, send them to kidneycast at com. Thank you so much for talking to me this week, Ari.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And thank you to everyone for listening to the KidneyCast. I hope you've all signed up to be organ donors.